I have quite the present for you. You'll be making a trip through the countryside to Holy Moly Manor Retirement Community. The consult is for a 68-year-old male in room 6. One. Two. With uh, a bit of a rash on the arms, legs, and... Oh, what is this word? Prepuce? Rule out vasculitis. Happy birthday. Now go pin the tail on that biopsy site, doctor. Cheerio. Welcome to the Gren Zone. Dissecting dermatology differently. Here is your host, Dr. Logan Kolb. All right, welcome back. So we just spent the last several episodes going over the various causes of vasculitis and the vasculopathies. It was dense, it was a ton of information, but now that we've gone through it, we'll spend the next 20 or 30 minutes going over what to do with this information at the patient's bedside. When it comes to purpuric rashes, there is a whole slew of approaches described in the literature because it's such a wide differential. In today's episode, we'll discuss one that is simple and makes sense to me. We'll take it slow, we'll go over some pearls for our H&P, and then see a hypothetical patient with a purpuric rash with a little help from our friend, Dr. Titus Vasculitis. I may not be able to make you an expert like myself. After all, it takes years of experience and confidence to hyphenate your last name with vasculitis. But hey, you gotta start somewhere, kid. Let's do this dance. I want to spend some extra time reviewing our purpuric rash differential, so we'll skip our reaction pattern review and quick mention our disclaimer. This episode is meant for educational and informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Nor does this episode represent the views of Orange Park Medical Center, Olmstead Medical Center, or their affiliates. When we believe we're up against a purpuric rash, there are four goals we want to accomplish for our patient. One, determine if there's vasculitis present and make a diagnosis. Two, do a proper workup for systemic involvement. Three, find any underlying cause that we can treat, such as infection, malignancy, or culprit medications. And four, actually treat these patients and get them better. Goal number one of getting the diagnosis is often the most challenging, but like I always mention, keep a good differential and let it guide your questions in your physical exam. So let's take a couple of minutes and review that differential for purpuric lesions. Remember to think about the three locations of pathology around the blood vessel, one being problems with the vessel walls themselves such as inflammation and vasculitis, or other alterations due to diabetes, amyloid deposition, or calcium deposition as in calciphylaxis. Location number two is intravascular pathology, which are the vasculopathies such as coagulation or platelet abnormalities along with embolic conditions. And then three, think of problems outside the blood vessel wall such as connective tissue issues like scurvy or actinic purpura. So that's the first three basic branches of your diagnostic algorithm. We then break vasculitis up based on the size of the vessels involved. Remember, the small vessel vasculitides that we've discussed include cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, henox schonlein purpura, aka HSP, and urticarial vasculitis. Other small vessel vasculitides that we didn't cover in depth include acute hemorrhagic edema of infancy, erythema elevatum diutinum, aka EED, and granuloma faciali. 
Then the small and medium vessel vasculitides that we covered include mixed cryoglobulinemia types 2 and 3 and the three ANCA-associated vasculitides, which include granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka GPA, number 2, microscopic polyangiitis, and 3, eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka eGPA. Our traditional medium vessel-only vasculitides include polyarteritis nodosa, aka PAN, and Kawasaki disease. And lastly, there are the large vessel vasculitides, including temporal arteritis, aka giant cell arteritis, and Takayasu's arteritis. Doctor, stop dilly-dallying around! You know what happens at the manor. The patient will go off to bingo and be missing for hours, and I'm not calling any more code greens to find your patients. All right, so let's keep this differential in the back of our minds as we go to see our patient on the wards in room six, one, two. So you go to the patient's room, introduce yourself, and ask to take a quick glance at the patient's rash. You see scattered petechiae and palpable purpura on the bilateral lower legs, and the patient appears comfortable. Your gut tells you you're looking at a small vessel vasculitis, but we'll see. As always, get your HPI with the story of what brought the patient to the hospital and get your OPQRSTs on the rash itself. When and where on the body did it start? Was it abrupt or gradual onset? Has the patient ever had it before? How has it progressed since it started? Is today a good day or bad day for how the rash looks? Anything else seem to make it better? How about what makes it worse? What treatments have you tried? As always, you want to know your patients well, so review all of their past medical, surgical history, allergies, meds, family history, and social history. You want to specifically ask about a family history of bleeding disorders as well. And when it comes to a social history, you'll also want to specifically ask about cocaine use, since levamisole-contaminated cocaine can lead to a mixed vasculitis or vasculopathy. You're, you're, you're asking me. You're asking me. If I use cocaine, the answer is absolutely not. I have a reputation up. I have a business. I, I, I make money and I, I spend it on uh, the, the children and uh, for, for, philanthropy. <laughs> the answer is no. Unless you got some. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So you've got your basic HPI and reviewed the patient's history. So let's say he's a 68-year-old male who is otherwise healthy besides being obese and having a new diagnosis of hypertension in the last year. His rash has been going on for a few weeks. This is the first time he's had it, and it started on the legs and has since spread to his torso and arms in the last two days. He hasn't tried any treatment so far, and he can't pinpoint anything that makes it better or worse. He's otherwise had a cold recently with fatigue, sinus congestion, a runny nose, and a cough, but this has all been improving since it started a few weeks ago. Now, remember that we're suspecting cutaneous small vessel vasculitis based on the rash appearance and the patient's story. Now, remember goal number three is finding and treating any underlying causes for the rash. So next, let's use our MANIC acronym to remember the classic cutaneous small vessel vasculitis triggers, which includes medications, A for autoimmune diseases, N for NSAIDs, I for infections, and uncommonly C for cancer. All right, Sparky, I like where your head is at, but what medications can lead to a cutaneous small vessel vasculitis that you should be looking out for? Remember to keep an eye out for beta-lactam antibiotics, over-the-counter NSAIDs, or really any medication that is new or had the dose increased in recent months. 
Our patient started hydrochlorothiazide several months ago and has been taking ibuprofen for sinus congestion headaches. So we have a couple possible culprits. Okay, speaking of nasally sinuses, what are some of the infectious causes for cutaneous small vessel vasculitis? When it comes to infections, a variety of bacterial, viral, or fungal infections can be the culprits for cutaneous small vessel vasculitis. So think about the more common ones like strep throat, pneumonias, or UTIs, and we'll go over a good review of systems for these in a minute. Then we think about associated inflammatory conditions like inflammatory bowel disease or autoimmune diseases like lupus, which you should pick up when asking about the patient's past medical history. Then lastly, we worry about malignancy as a cause, so ask about the patient's history of malignancy screening, including colonoscopies, chest CTs for chronic smokers, and mammograms or abnormal pap smears for your female patients. First you ask me if I do cocaine. Now you want to know if I smoke cigarettes? And something about a pap smear? How about I give you a pap smear, pal? So as promised, when it comes to working up patients with purpuric rashes, you want a really good review of systems to help us with goals number two and three, to rule out systemic involvement and then find possible triggers such as infections or malignancy. So these are what I call the eyebrow razors. You look at a rash that looks like vasculitis, you get this really good review of systems, and when I get positive findings, my brows reach up for my receding hairline. So let's play another little game, Sparky. I say the system, you tell me the questions to ask your possible vasculitis patient, the hints that those questions provide, and any further workup that they might trigger. All right, question number one. What about constitutional symptoms? How about fevers, chills, fatigue, night sweats, loss of appetite, and unintended weight loss? These are nonspecific, but remember that if you have a vasculitis patient, they point towards more systemic involvement. The presence of fevers might suggest infection as a cause for cutaneous small vessel vasculitis or aseptic vasculitis. Remember that weight loss of 4 kilograms or more is one of the ACR criteria for polyuteritis nodosa. Also remember that the B symptoms might raise your suspicion of malignancy as a trigger for LCV or a lymphoproliferative disorder triggering a type 1 cryoglobulinemia. Constitutional symptoms can further be worked up with a CBC and possibly ESR, CRP, or an ANA. Okay, let's go from head to toe. How about the eyes? These are low yield since you usually don't see vision changes with vasculitis, but eye pain or vision changes have been reported with granulomatosis with polyangiitis. If your patient is a young child, ocular changes are crucial to ask about because remember that Kawasaki disease patients can get a conjunctivitis. And then your older patients with temporal arteritis can have vision changes and blindness late in their disease course as well. How about the ear, nose, and the throat? These are also pretty low yield, but a persistent runny nose, nosebleeds, sinus pain, or ear pain or hearing loss can be associated with granulomatosis with polyangiitis, again also known as Wegener's granulomatosis, which we work up by ordering ANCAs. The symptoms of a recent upper respiratory infection or a sore throat could be a sign of strep pharyngitis as an infectious trigger for CSVV as well. Alright, breathe, relax. How about the respiratory system? 
Ask about shortness of breath and a cough, and if the cough is productive, you want to ask about hemoptysis. When you have a review of systems question like cough that is positive, you should have a couple of follow-up questions to determine how severe or relevant it is. So not only can these respiratory symptoms be signs of various infections or pneumonia as a CSVV trigger, but also remember that for sick patients with purpura, pulmonary involvement may hint you towards any of the three ankyovasculitides. As far as workup for pulmonary involvement, you will want to at least get a chest x-ray for patients with any of these symptoms. Okay, how about cardio involvement? Ask about chest pain, palpitations, and orthopnea. Remember that CHF is the number one killer of patients with eosinophilic granulomatosis with polyangiitis, aka Sjurg-Strauss syndrome. Patients with cardio involvement should have an EKG and an echocardiogram. Fine, fine. So how about the GI system? You'll want to ask about nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain, and bloody stools. Remember that GI involvement can hint you in towards Henoch-Shanlin purpura or maybe inflammatory bowel disease as an underlying association for a CSVV patient. Also keep in mind that kids with Kawasaki disease may also have abdominal pain and diarrhea. All patients with purpuric rashes and GI involvement will need a fecal occult blood test. While we're thinking about what lies beneath, what's on your review of systems for genital involvement? Remember that testicle tenderness or pain can be a great clue for the diagnosis of polyarteritis nodosa in male patients. How about the urologic system? Ask about urinary frequency, pain or difficulty with urinating, gross hematuria, and urgency, which refers to the sudden urge to urinate. All of these signs can be seen in a urinary tract infection, which can be a trigger for cutaneous small vessel vasculitis. Keep in mind that gross hematuria should raise your eyebrows for HSP or granulomatosis with polyangiitis. All patients with rashes resembling vasculitis should get a UA and BMP, but you'll also want to consider urine sediments and urine protein and creatinine levels as well. Alright muscle man, what about musculoskeletal changes? Ask about joint pain, muscle pain, or muscle weakness. Arthralgias can be nonspecific but are seen with cutaneous small vessel vasculitis, urticarial vasculitis, or 75% of cases of Henoch-Shanlin purpura. This joint pain may also be a sign of associated autoimmune disease or can occur in the cryoglobulinemias without associated autoimmune disorders as well. Remember that muscle pain, tenderness, or weakness can be seen in polyarteritis nodosa patients too. What about neurologic questions? Screen for peripheral neuropathies by asking about numbness, tingling, or motor weakness. Remember that neurologic changes are present in over half of PAN, GPA, and EGPA patients. Nerve conduction studies with our friends in neurology should be considered in these cases. Fine, how about the blood and hematology? Easy bruising, bleeding gums, or epistaxis may hint you towards coagulation or platelet abnormalities, while swollen glands or lymph nodes raise your eyebrows for malignancy or infection. And something you better know something about, how about your review of systems for the skin? As with any rash, you'll want to know symptoms of pruritus, pain, and where new lesions are developing. So next, we'll walk through a head-to-toe exam of one of these patients, but first let's give our brains a little break with some music. 
Step one for your physical exam, look at the vital signs. Hypertension can be a sign of polyuteritis nodosa or Schurg-Strauss syndrome. Next, you want to look at the patient's skin from head to toe. There are three main things you want to look closely at. One being the size of the lesions themselves. Are they petechiae? Are there purpura? Are there ecchymoses? Then two, are the purpura palpable, which is important because it's a sign of inflammation and suggests a vasculitis over vasculopathy. And three, is there a levito pattern, which is a bad sign for occlusion of larger vessels. This levito pattern refers to a spectrum of occlusion, with levito reticularis on the milder end, levito racemosa in the middle, and retiform purpura at the severe end. So besides looking for these three crucial features, which again are one, the size of the purpura, two, whether or not they are palpable, and three, the presence of a lividoid pattern, you also want to look for urticarial lesions, which suggests an urticarial vasculitis. Also, take note of whether lesions appear on areas that are susceptible to the cold, such as the ears. Okay, the patient has purpura on the ears. What two conditions are you worried about? Audience, no, um... Uh, okay, never mind, they're not here. So, uh, what are those two conditions, Sparky? For purpura on the cold-sensitive ears, you want to think about cryoglobulinemias, which remember are antibodies that precipitate in the cold, or think of cocaine with levamisol, which classically has purpura on the earlobes. So I box eight days a week, like every alpha male, which equals having purple ears. So what? So sticking with our exam to find other clues to the diagnosis, you'll want to examine the mucosa of the nose and mouth for ulcerations or the pathognomonic strawberry gum seen with granulomatosis with polyangiitis. If you're worried about polyuteritis nodosa in one of your male patients, check for testicle tenderness too. You may also want to test the patient's peripheral motor and sensory function, which may be abnormal in polyuteritis nodosa or the ankyovasculitides, such as the mononeuritis multiplex we discussed for eGPA. If you can have your patient walk, this can also help detect the foot drop that can be seen in PAN as well. Okay, so you've done a nice thorough H&P. You sit down at your workstation and type up the first half of your note while it's fresh in your mind. Now it's time to formulate your differential diagnosis and think about further workup to propose to your attending. And that's me today, yes sir. So what labs might you want to order for these patients with purpuric rashes? When it comes to ordering lab work, there's a fine line to walk. If you order too few, you can miss systemic involvement and get the patient and yourself in trouble. We also don't want to shotgun a ton of tests either because it's not only costly, but you can get stuck with false positives or other irrelevant findings. There is no protocol for workup since it is very patient dependent and should be guided by your physical exam and what you come up with with your review of systems. So here's how I like to think about it. If you have a patient who has what looks like cutaneous small vessel vasculitis but feels fine and has no other symptoms, you'll still always want to get a CBC, BMP, and a UA as a general screening. The urinalysis is crucial to remember because it will detect a glomerulonephritis which will drastically change our management. If patients have other symptoms or their CSVV lesions aren't resolving or are recurrent, some of the other common labs ordered besides the CBC, BMP, and UA includes LFTs, a stool guaiac, 
coagulation profile, sed rate, CRP, ANA, rheumatoid factor, which remember serves as a surrogate marker for mixed cryoglobulins, and then infectious workup including ASO titers, HIV, and hepatitis serologies. Beyond this, second-tier tests to consider include C or P ANCAs, cryoglobulins, antiphospholipid antibodies, C3 and C4 complement levels, which can be low in systemic lupus or urticarial vasculitis, and then SPEP and UPEP for paraproteinemias, and a peripheral blood smear. Other workup may include imaging such as a chest x-ray if you're concerned about pulmonary involvement, as in GPA or pneumonia as a trigger for cutaneous small vessel vasculitis. All right, let's play another game. I name each of these labs you want to order. You give me a good reason you're ordering it to justify its cost. Question number one, tell me what you might be looking for with your CBC. Obviously, your CBC will give you your platelet count, which may be elevated in the central thrombocytosis or low in a variety of inherited or acquired platelet disorders like ITP. A CBC may show anemia in polyarteritis nodosa or Kawasaki disease patients, or abnormalities can be found in a CBC such as a lymphoma which would show an impressive lymphocytosis or pancytopenia. The CBC may also show you an eosinophilia that can be helpful in diagnosing cholesterol emboli or Schurg-Strauss syndrome. Okay, well done you little whippersnapper. So how about a comprehensive metabolic panel? A CMP may show signs of renal involvement, such as an elevated creatinine. Remember that renal involvement can be seen with henoch-shanling purpura, polyarteritis nodosa, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, and microscopic polyangiitis. And why might you ask your patient to pee in a cup for a urinalysis? Remember that hematuria can be present in henoch-shanling purpura, granulomatosis with polyangiitis, microscopic polyangiitis, and polyarteritis nodosa. A UA can also clue you into a glomerulonephritis by detecting red cells, red cell casts, and protein in the urine as well. Fine, how about a coagulation profile? Obviously, elevations in PT, PTT, or INR will give you information about the patient's coagulation status and how prone they are to making purpuric lesions. Fine. What about an ESR and CRP? The SED rate and CRP can clue you into more systemic involvement, but they are especially helpful for Kawasaki disease and temporal arteritis. Remember that an elevated SED rate in adults with HSP may also suggest that the patient is at a higher risk of IgA glomerulonephritis. But also, keep in mind that ESR and CRP are very nonspecific, where they can be elevated in skin-limited CSVV or they're completely normal in systemic vasculitis. And why might I order compliments? And I'm not referring to the ones you seek out after a day with that doom and gloom Dr. Grumpy Pants. Complement levels can be very helpful if you're worried about cryoglobulinemia, since they are low in 90% of those patients. Complement levels are also helpful for urticarial vasculitis and for detecting systemic lupus, since low complement levels are associated with more systemic involvement. Fine, fine. What about a rheumatoid factor? 
Rheumatoid factors are antibodies that are bound to the FC portion or the bottom of the Y shape of another antibody. Rheumatoid factor is the poor man's cryoglobulinemia test since it is positive in over 70% of cryoglobulinemia cases, which makes sense because remember that cryoglobulinemia types 2 and 3 are caused by a mix of antibodies in a patient's system. Alright, here's a good one. So a hepatitis panel is helpful for two vasculitides in particular. Can you name them? A hepatitis panel is helpful because remember that hep B and C can be associated with polyarteritis nodosa and cryoglobulinemia. And why might one order a tox screen? If you're worried about cocaine and levamisole-induced vascular lesions, the tox screen will help clinch that diagnosis for you. Alright, so let's get back to our patient. You've gone through your thorough H&P and you present the story, your differential, and your plan to Dr. Titus Vasculitis. You're suspecting a cutaneous small vessel vasculitis induced by either the patient's new HCTZ or his recent upper respiratory infection. Dr. T then asks you to... Order some screening labs including a CBC, CMP, COAG profile, SED rate, CRP, UA, ANA, ASO titers, rheumatoid factor, and hepatitis serologies. Okay, goodbye. He also asks you to perform two lesional punch biopsies, one for H&E and the other for DIF. The big goal of the biopsy is to find whether there is vasculitis present or not. If there is vasculitis, you will categorize it based on the vessel size involved. If there's no vasculitis, then you may be looking at a vasculopathy and may want to consider a hematology referral for help with further workup. Biopsies may also show findings suggestive of the pigmented purpuras that we discussed. And why did I suggest doing a DIF on this purpuric rash? The DIF is especially helpful when you're suspecting Henoch-Shanlin purpura, which will show IgA deposition in and around small blood vessels. DIF will also be positive in around 70-80% to 80 of several other types of vasculitis, including cutaneous small vessel vasculitis patients, urticarial vasculitis, and polyarteritis nodosa. The DIF in these conditions will show perivascular C3 and IgM, IgA, or IgG. As far as treatment goes, it will definitely vary depending on the diagnosis you reach. The patient in our vignette actually had cutaneous small vessel vasculitis as we suspected. And since CSVV is the most common vasculitis you'll see, we'll quick focus on its treatment, which is mostly supportive. You will want to treat any underlying infections, stop or switch any medications you suspect are playing a role, and then tell the patient to elevate and compress their legs, which is often the most severely affected area for these CSVV patients thanks to gravity. If your CSVV patients are itching, you can add on antihistamines, topical steroids, or other topical treatments for paritis, such as calamine lotions. If patients aren't getting better with supportive measures or they are severely affected, that's when you reach for systemic medications such as colchicine, dapsone, prednisone, or other systemic immunosuppressants. And to save time, I won't go into the treatment for all the other vasculitides, but just know that the mainstay of treatment are immunosuppressants and anti-inflammatories. So with that, we will wrap up our last episode on vasculitis and the vasculopathies. It's a tough topic, I know it's dense, but I hope I've at least given you a good place to start. Before we finish today's episode, I want to leave you with a little wisdom. A good family friend told me before I started med school, Logan, have a little fun every day. 
It seems simple, but it's something that many of us often don't do. We get caught up in our busy lives and our to-do lists, but we don't take this tiny amount of time for ourselves which can keep us happy and help us take better care of our patients in the end. So if I can remind you and enable you, take at least 5-10 to 10 minutes every single day of your life to do something that brings you joy, whether it's playing an instrument or calling up an old friend or just taking some time for peace and quiet and meditation. And if you think you don't have time, here's another trick. Put your phone in a drawer when you get home to keep it out of sight and out of mind because we all know we waste way too much time scrolling through social media and other apps and not enjoying this time with our loved ones and taking time for ourselves. All right, thanks for joining today. I want to thank Dr. Sean for his help with the content and Dr. K for not only adding clinical pearls but supporting this podcast from the get-go. I also want to thank Garrett and Dan for their work with editing and post-production, along with our excellent team of students and residents with Dave, Dan, and Sandra, who put together an awesome study guide for each episode that's available at www.grenzonederm.com. And that's with two Zs, grenzonederm.com. If you have any feedback on how we can improve our content, you can contact us through our website or via email at grenzonederm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media for more helpful mnemonics and quiz questions. Thanks again for listening today. I'm Logan Kolb, and we'll see you next time here in the Gren Zone. This episode is copyright 2020 Pro Podcasting LLC, all rights reserved. The Gren Zone podcast is a service provided by Pro Podcasting LLC and is not affiliated with any other service providers. I think I, I think I'm gonna get a really good one here. Oh, they like you haven't already. All right. <laughs> You're asking me if I do cocaine. The answer is no. Just because I'm the alpha male that you fear does not mean that I do cocaine. Okay.